0: You know, maybe you have heard these things. The Bible is just a collection of myths. It's not a reliable historical text. It's been corrupted. Maybe there were these other writings that were supposed to be in the Bible that are not there. And so what we have can't be relied upon. How do we even know that Jesus really died? How do we know that he rose from the dead? How do we know he existed? And if he did all those things, where is he? Why hasn't he come back? Where is his imminent return that was talked about? You ever heard those questions? Those statements? You ever heard those thoughts? Have you ever had those thoughts? I have. Listen, I know we're at church. Can we not play church for a second? Can we be real and genuine with one another? We doubt sometimes. And these are natural good questions. These are valid questions. These are valid statements. Essentially, we're asking, is this the word of God? Can we rely on this? Can we trust the Bible? That's the question we're looking at. That's the question we are asking this morning. And so with that said, let's look in the Bible. Turn to 2 Peter. The second letter of Peter is toward the back of the New Testament. Peter, I believe in our passage today, would summarize it this way. We can trust the Bible and thus trust that Jesus is coming back because the Bible is reliable, sufficient, authoritative, and inspired. So, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for we... is we? Well, this is the second letter of Peter, so pop quiz. This is not a trick question. Who wrote the second letter of Peter? Peter. Oh, you guys are good. (laughs) Peter! So when he says we, he's talking about himself, Peter, and the other apostles. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in fact, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Number one, the Bible is reliable. It is trustworthy. It is dependable. That's what he's saying. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. It's the word mythos in Greek. It's literally where we get our word myth. It means stories, fables. We didn't follow cleverly invented fables. Now, Peter and the apostles, the early Christians, had opponents, naysayers and detractors who were trying to say, well, how do we know Jesus is really coming back? If he's coming back, where is he? How do we know Peter and the apostles didn't just make it all up? Maybe they just lied about the whole thing. Maybe they made everything up about Jesus. They just made it all up. Maybe the teachings of Jesus are outdated and antiquated. And false teachers were spreading false rumors among the church. And that's what Peter addresses in chapter 2. How wild is that, by the way? Do you realize this letter was written between probably 65 to 68 A.D.? Merely 35 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus took place. 35 years after that event. And already people are saying, ah, it's probably all made up. It's probably all made up. Everything about Jesus was invented after such a short time. It should not be super surprising to us that people would be doubting already. July 20th this year, We celebrate the 50th anniversary of? Okay, I got one person that got it. The lunar landing. Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong steps out. There's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Right? 50th anniversary, July 20th this year. Do you realize that there are conspiracy theorists who say it never happened? They made the whole thing up? You know that there are people who say the Holocaust never happened? The Holocaust Six million Jews plus many, many others mercilessly killed. We have mounds of evidence for that. And there are people who say, no, it never happened. People say 9-11 never happened. How long ago was that? We should not be surprised. We are by nature doubters. We are, skepticism is our natural inherent position. It's our natural state. We are doubters. And the implications were that if Jesus were not coming back, then the Scripture's not true, and we can live however we want, whenever we want. We can do whatever we want. We can live for our glory. And Peter says, "Uh uh-uh. No, no. These are not cunningly invented fables. These are not cunningly invented stories like, like Aesop's fables or Disney. Our two daughters love Disney, but even they know Disney is not real This is not like Batman. Sorry, Pastor Stephen, wherever you are. If you know Pastor Stephen, he is a fanatic about Batman. I hope he knows Batman's not real. (laughs) That's our pastor of counseling. (laughs) These are not cunningly invented stories. Peter is saying, this is real. This happened. The Bible is not written mythically. It's more like a police report than an entertaining story does not contain mythical language or embellished details. Instead, it has genealogies, names, places, locations, dates, measurements, meticulous accuracy of details, gives it credence. It begs its readers to test its validity. It's like the Bible is saying, all right, you don't believe me? Go check it out for yourself. And some people have. They're called biblical archaeologists. Archaeological evidence continues to validate scripture today, but it's not written like a myth. If it were, listen, the early disciples, the New Testament authors look bad in the Bible. They look terrible. They are selfish. They are cowardly. Case in point, Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he rises from the dead. Where are the apostles at that time? They're huddled in a room together, cowering in a fear. And who are the first ones to see the risen Jesus, to see the empty tomb? Men or women? Women! The men are back cowering in fear. It's the women that see the risen Christ, the empty tomb. Why is that such a big deal? Because women back then, 2,000 years ago, had no rights. The testimony of a woman would not be held up in court. So, if you are making this up, they would be astronomically stupid to say that women were the first ones to see the risen Jesus. That makes no sense unless it really happened. Moreover, myths take time to develop, centuries to develop. And evidence suggests that Jesus' resurrection was told widespread, not centuries later, but a few years, even months after it took place. Furthermore, the Bible does not match what we in our innate human nature would derive falsely. Like we wouldn't make this stuff up. No one, no human would make this stuff up because actually scripture rubs us the wrong way. The gospel rubs us the wrong way. The Bible tells us, tells us it accuses us of being wicked, sinful, selfish, prideful, messed up, jacked up people. We don't want to hear that, let alone make that up about us it rubs us the wrong way. The biblical concept of grace is counterintuitive and radically unique from every other worldview, every religion, every other faith, which has some kind of works-based righteousness built into it. See, that appeals to us. Works-based righteousness. What can I do to earn God's approval? What religious acts can I do? Maybe I can do these steps and these things and follow these rules and I'll just climb my way up. That appeals to our flesh because then we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and fix ourselves, that's not the gospel. The gospel says, no, you are so depraved, you are so far gone, you can't fix yourself. In fact, you're dead. You are dead in your sin. You know what the Greek word is for dead? Dead. <laughs> like, dead. That's the connotation. We are dead. We have no hope. This, this goes against the grain of our souls. And Peter says... Listen, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw Jesus. We witnessed Jesus in all his glory. This actually happened. Are there any lawyers in the house? Show of hands. Okay, calmly put your hands down. (laughs) Listen, in the court of law, for the legal method of discerning truth, you basically have two ways to do that. Eyewitness testimonies, and evidence, eyewitnesses, and evidence. And Peter is defending the truth and the certainty of Christ's return by two things, eyewitness testimony, verses 16 through 18, and evidence through scripture, verses 19 through 21. And that's what his opponents are attacking. They're going after those two things, because they're saying, Jesus is not coming back, so let's just invalidate their testimony. And validate their eyewitness testimony, say they made it up, they're a bunch of liars. Oh, and then let's go after scripture, the evidence that they have. It makes no sense. The disciples had nothing to gain. What did they have to gain? Nothing from making this stuff up about Jesus. Do you realize that according to tradition and historical ancient documents, that most, if not all, of the disciples, the original disciples, died as martyrs of Jesus. And I don't mean that they just like died on their deathbed. They died badly, horrifically. Peter was crucified upside down, Paul was beheaded in Rome, Thomas was speared to death by four soldiers in India, Andrew was crucified, Philip was tortured to death, James, we see in the book of Acts, was killed by the sword. Only John actually died in his old age, and according to tradition, he was actually boiled alive to be tortured, somehow survived that, then exiled to the island of Patmos to spend the rest of his days in isolation. Not exactly club med. All the disciples died badly. Who dies for a known lie? No one. There's a reason Peter says, we didn't make this stuff up. They saw Jesus in all his majestic glory. Look at verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is referring to an event in Scripture called the Transfiguration of Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Keep your finger here. Turn to Luke chapter 9. We have this account of the transfiguration in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, and in the gospel of Mark. But here in Luke 19, verse 28, listen to this. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. The other passages say it, it shone brightly. It was radiant like the sun. And the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. I love what the Gospel of Mark says here. It says, Jesus' clothes became so white, whiter than any bleach on earth could whiten them. Take that, Tide. So, Jesus, in all his glorious, radiant splendor, is shining so bright they can't even look at him. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, remember that. Very important. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. That's a euphemism for these dudes passed out. I mean, you would too. They see Jesus in all his full splendor and radiant glory, and they're like, oh, and they pass out, they faint. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Moses and Elijah are about to leave, Peter blurts out, he says, oh, Jesus, wait, wait, wait. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I love this, not knowing what in the world he was saying. That's humor right there, that's, that is, that's gold. I don't know if you've ever been around a celebrity, like a, a famous athlete, pro athlete, or a musician, rock star, a movie star, whatever, and you meet them and you look up to them, and in your mind, you're wanting to say something so eloquent and so beautiful, but out comes, hi, <laughs> uh, I loved you in that movie that you were in that one time. You're like, what am I saying? Imagine being in the glorious, awesome presence of the Son of God with Moses and Elijah. Yeah, Peter didn't know what he was saying. Now, is he saying, hey, Jesus, um, I got an idea. Let's go camping. No. What is he referring to? Well, Peter is referring to a Jewish feast called the Sukkot, or the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of the Harvest, This is a Jewish feast that is still celebrated today in the fall. And so the Feast of the Tabernacles pointed prophetically to the Messiah's coming, to the ultimate end of all things, when God would usher in and dwell or tabernacle among His people as they would live with Him forever. What does John 1 say? Jesus came and the Word dwelt or tabernacled among us. And so Moses, or excuse me, Peter is thinking, this is it, it's the end of days, this is it, Jesus is finally ushering in his kingdom, this is it, I'm seeing him in his glorified state, this must be the end, all right, let's get the tabernacle set up, but it it wasn't yet time, which is why Peter is so confident, so emphatic that Jesus is coming back, because this was just a glimpse, just a glimpse of when Jesus does come back in all his radiant glory, so moving on in the passage verse 34 as he was saying these things a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him In Matthew 17 it says that the father says this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him And when the voice had spoken Jesus was found alone And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So Peter, John, and James catch for a moment a glimpse of Jesus in his radiant, awesome, majestic, glorious, splendorous divinity. He was transformed before them, so they saw him as he truly is. And moreover, God the Father spoke from heaven and declared Jesus as his son in whom he was fully pleased. This was a foretaste of divine glory when Jesus returns, which is why Peter is so emphatically confident Jesus is coming again. Amen? Are we so confident and joyous? Now, someone might say, I've heard this before. I've talked to uh, maybe people who are more skeptical, agnostic, and they might say, "Listen, I would, I, I would believe all this. I just need empirical evidence. I, I want to see Jesus in the flesh. If I saw the Son of God, and if I heard the voice of God, then I would believe." Well, that's what makes verse 19 in Second Peter one so spectacular and profound. So look at it, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The Old Testament, which Peter refers to here as the prophetic word, is even more certain and confirmed because of their having seen Jesus in all his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Seeing Jesus in his majestic glory confirmed the reliability of Old Testament messianic prophecies. Let me put it another way. Peter is saying the Bible is as sure and reliable as physically seeing the Son of God in all his majestic glory and audibly hearing God the Father affirm his Son. What we have here is as good as seeing and hearing God. Do you believe that? That's incredible. Certainly, we would listen to an authoritative, booming voice of God from heaven, should we consider his very words in the Bible any less authoritative because they are written down. The Old Testament scriptures are reliable and more fully confirmed because they were fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament actually pointed to Jesus. Jesus says that in Luke 24, so... In Luke 24, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he's appearing before his disciples. He's on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples, and it says in Luke 24:27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses and the prophets. That's how Jewish people back then would refer to the Old Testament. They didn't have Old Testament, New Testament, so they called it Mo- Moses and the prophets. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How would you like to be a part of that Bible study? Can you imagine walking with Jesus? And they, by the way, they didn't even recognize Jesus at the time until God opens their eyes. And so they're walking with Jesus. They're just thinking they're with this really smart guy. And Jesus goes through all the Old Testament and points points out how every passage points to him. Well, look at this passage. Well, that points to me. Oh, Oh, this is a good passage. That one points to me, too. Oh, look at this passage. Look how this points to me. And it goes through all of the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. Now, question. Who appeared with Jesus at the Transfiguration? Come on, say that loud. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Elijah, who Jewish people back then, and even still today, consider the One of the, if not the greatest prophet, Moses and Elijah, Moses and the prophet, Moses and the prophets. Do you see what God is doing? Do you think God knew what he was up to when he had that happen? Jesus appearing with Moses and the prophets. If the Old Testament was confirmed by the New Testament and fulfilled in Jesus, you can be extremely sure that Jesus is coming back. We just sang about it earlier. I hope you rejoice in that. Peter's making crystal clear there is confidence in Jesus' return. Now, there is something to be said here about the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's the second point. The Bible is sufficient, the Bible is enough. Peter says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's sufficient, it's enough. Jesus in Luke 16 tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You can read it on your own, but basically the rich man is in hell. He didn't believe in Jesus. Lazarus, a poor man, is in heaven. He believed in Jesus. He's at Abraham's side. And somehow in this story, the rich man sees Lazarus from a distance. And in his agony, he cries out, Abraham, I I have brothers on earth. I don't want them to come to this place of torment. Please would you send Lazarus back from the dead to appear before them? Surely they would believe if a dead man appeared to them, risen from the dead. And Abraham's response is astounding. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, to warn them of spiritual truths. The Bible is sufficient for spiritual truth and to know the way of salvation. We don't need salvation for dummies. This is what we have. We don't need another spiritual text. We don't need anything. It's not the Bible plus this or the Bible plus that. It's Scripture alone. We don't need something else. And many have claimed that the Bible is not enough. They'll say, well, don't you know there's additional revelation? There's this holy text and this inspired writing. I mean, the Bible is nice and everything, but wouldn't you want to read this additional revelation? Or they'll say the Bible has been corrupted even though there's so much evidence that disproves that they'll say the bible has been corrupted therefore you need this new shiny testimony you need this new shiny scripture that's actually the revelation of god i've had people from other religions tell me something along these lines listen we love the bible the bible's great the bible is like a love letter from god but wouldn't you want more love letters from god oh <laughs> doesn't that sound nice Oh, I would love more love letters from God. And sadly, that line of thinking has duped many churchgoers. Here's how we should respond. First, the Bible is not a love letter. It's not. Please hear me out. The Bible is not a love letter. A love letter is when someone is writing to their beloved, like, mush schmoopy movie, movie, mush schmoopy schmoopy. You know, hugs and kisses, XO, XO, XO. God is not in heaven doing that, writing us a love letter. Because, listen to me, the Bible is not about us. It's not about us. It's about God. It's not about our glory. It's about His. The Bible is not a love letter. Now, does God love us? Oh, yes. Miraculously, mercifully, mind Boggingly, yes, God loves us. But the Bible is not a love letter. The Bible is a love story. And it is the story of God redeeming his people for his glory, not ours. It's important to understand. Second, let's say it is a love letter. Any writings after the Bible claiming to be scripture is merely catfishing. You know what catfishing is, right? When you receive a letter or an email from someone and you think it's from this particular person, but actually it's someone using a false pseudoname. And so when someone claims, oh, this is actual scripture, after the Bible, it's like love letters from your beloved. Yeah, that would be great. They're beautiful unless you find out they are fraudulent. And they're not written from your beloved. They're written from some weirdo in Connecticut. That's Not what we want. Listen, the Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. The Bible is sufficient. Third, the Bible is authoritative. Peter says that. He says, you would be wise then to pay attention to this, to live according to it. He calls Scripture a lamp shining in a dark place. Darkness almost always represents evil, wickedness, sin in the Bible, and Peter is saying, this is not bad. This is not evil. This is not wicked. This is actually a light that dispels darkness. This is is a light that we should walk according to. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? Light unto my path. This is what guides us. This is what directs us. Jeff Foxworthy, uh, the comedian, tells this story. He's on his way home. From a comedy show, and he's on the plane, and years ago, planes used to have this, every airplane in the seat pocket in front of you would have this magazine. And so he pulled out this magazine. You know what it was called? Sky Mall. Remember Sky Mall? If you don't, you are way too young. <laughs> Sky Mall. So Sky Mall was this shopping catalog of all this amazing stuff, all these gadgets and trinkets and things that no one would ever need anywhere like a phone shaped like a football. Who needs that? And so Jeff Foxworthy is going through this catalog, and he's chuckling to himself, and he comes across house slippers with headlights. (laughs) Yeah. And he goes, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. This is so stupid. Who is buying this? So he goes home. And he gets there late at night. His wife and kids are in bed. All the lights are off. You see where I'm going with this? He goes into his bedroom. He changes his clothes. And he's heading to the bathroom to brush his teeth. And as he's on his way to the bathroom, his pinky toe catches the edge of the door jam. Have you ever jammed your pinky toe? Yep. Ah! How can this little appendage that's this big cause such searing pain throughout your whole body? I mean, it is so agonizingly painful. And as he is there writhing in agony, as he's there in pain, it dawns on him, there was something that could have prevented this. <laughs> and what do you think he bought within five minutes that night? See, that's what light does. Light illuminates. Light Reveals. Light guides. Light warns. That's what light does. Darkness doesn't do that. Darkness distorts reality. Shadows distort reality. But light illuminates and reveals how things really are. Live according to the Bible because this reveals how our world really is. Use scripture to walk by its light. Does not the Bible reveal the heart of mankind better than any writing in existence? Have you ever felt that when you're reading and you're like, man, that is me. This is, this is revealing things in me. God will reveal things in your heart through Scripture that you didn't even know were there. And he will bring them into light. Or maybe you do know they are there and you're just trying to hide them in the darkness, hide them in the shadow. Scripture will shine a big spotlight on those things so that they can be revealed and illuminated and uprooted the Bible illuminates and reveals your sin. It points you to Jesus and it reminds you of your identity in Christ. Believe all that is written in God's word. Bring your lives into conformity to its truth. For how long? Peter says until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus in Revelation 22:16 refers to him himself as the bright morning star. So Peter is saying, follow scripture until the day of the Lord's return, when Jesus comes again. And oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Those of you who belong to Jesus, your heart belongs to Jesus. Your heart will leap for joy when Jesus comes on those clouds to take us home with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. T.S. Colley said it this way, the knowledge of God that shines upon us in conversion through Jesus will reach its consummation at the return of Jesus. Ah, that's beautiful. Scripture is authoritative in our lives. It is a light to follow, to illuminate the path that should be followed until Jesus comes back, which leads us to the last two verses. Knowing this, first of all, that No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Number four, the Bible is inspired. It is reliable, sufficient, authoritative, and inspired. Pay attention to Scripture, he says. Why? Knowing that not one message of Scripture is derived from man-made origins. He says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the same word they would use if they were talking about a ship being driven along, driven by the wind. So imagine a sailboat with no rudder, just the sails, and the wind catches those sails, and the wind will guide and drive and direct that boat wherever it pleases, wherever it desires. So the wind is the guiding, driving force, but the sail is moved by the wind and used to move the boat. The Holy Spirit moved men to write the scriptures exactly as God intended. God spoke through these men, but he did not squelch or suppress their unique personalities, their creativity, their writing styles, their emotions. He actually used them. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. How much scripture? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. How much scripture? All. Not a little. Not some. Not most. All scripture. Every word of scripture is God breathed. That's literally the word. Is inspired, most translations say, is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God inspired every word of scripture. Each word is God-ordained and exactly as the Lord wanted. The Bible is God's revelation of truth from God Himself. This means that when you read the words of the Bible, these are the words of God. Whether it's on your phone or in paper form, these are the words of God. Oh, God forbid that we would ever take that for granted. God forbid that we'd be so dismissive that we'd be like, oh, okay, I'll read the Bible for five minutes, and then I'll go on to what I really want to do. I'll touch it for a little bit, and then I'll move on. No, God forbid that we would ever see God's words as boring and tedious. How beautiful and precious this should be to us. The Bible is composed of 66 books, two testaments, written by 40 human authors in three languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek on three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia over the span of 1,500 years, and yet there is one unified message of redemption throughout the whole thing, woven through the whole thing, which we call the gospel. God speaks to us through his word. Amen? Amen. How incredible. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the love story that we have in the Bible. And that is why Peter is essentially saying that we can trust the Bible and Because of the Bible, we can trust that Jesus is coming again because it is the reliable, sufficient, authoritative, and inspired word of God. The Bible is God's words to us. That's a big claim. These are God's words to us. So what are the implications of this? Real brief. Number one, this is why at Bethel we preach and teach from the Bible exegetically. That means from the text. We don't just want to come up here and give motivational speaking or worldly platitudes. That's what fortune cookies are for. We don't want to just give our opinions. Who cares what I think? Who cares what Pastor Steve thinks? Who cares what we all think? It doesn't matter what we think. It matters what God thinks. And so we don't want to take our opinions and try to shove them, push them into Scripture. We we don't want to uh, have our ideas and thoughts and then we cherry pick certain verses and passages to try to match our thoughts and our desires. That's called proof texting, and that's bad. The author's original intended meaning is derived from the text. That's how we want to preach faithfully and fearfully. This means, church, listen. You, we are going to encounter some tough passages this summer in our new summer series. Pastor Steve will tell you about later, and this fall, as we get into Romans 9 through 11, there will be some tough pills to swallow. And my fear is, my concern is that some of you will be like, it's too much. I'm out. I can't handle it. I'm out. I can't handle this teaching. I can't handle these passages. I can't take anymore. I'm out. Listen, we don't get to decide what is palatable in Scripture. We can't twist scripture to suit our biases and our views. We don't get to decide what parts we like and what we don't like, what parts we focus on, and we can throw out the rest. That is a slippery slope. It is either all inspired and directed by God or none of it is. Now, we can wrestle with it. We will wrestle with the text this summer and this fall, but we can't deny it. We can't gloss over and skip over it. And so Bethel is one of our High values as we want to preach and teach from God's Word. Number two, immerse yourself in the Bible. Immerse yourself in the Bible. Let let your mind just swim in the Bible every day. Don't just give it a touch, but swim in the Bible. Let your mind dwell on Scripture. Be saturated with truth from God's Word and live it out. I got this illustration from The Navigators, which is a missions and discipleship organization. Everyone hold up your hand like this, five fingers. This is called the five-finger way to grasp the Bible. So hold up your index finger, number 1. Listen to the Bible. Actually what you're doing this morning, you come to church, you listen to God's word being preached. That's good. But if I try to grasp God's word with one finger, right? That doesn't work. I can't balance it. That's that's not good. I need more than that. So hold up two fingers. Not only listen to God's word, read God's word. Study it. Read it for yourself, read it with others. Now, Okay, we're getting a little better stability. Three, memorize God's word. Sow God's word into your heart. Four, meditate on God's word. That means meditating on God's word is not like, oh, right? It's you feast on God's word. You're getting all the juices out of it. You're dwelling on it. You're thinking upon it, thinking about the implications and truths here. Now, if I do those four things, listen, read, memorize, and meditate, that's pretty good. I got some stability there but someone can easily easily snatch it out of my hand. I'm not really grasping it until I do the fifth thing, which is apply God's word. Live it out. Now you can hold, you can grasp God's word, and if someone tries to snatch it out of your hands, uh-uh, I got, I got this thing. And the Lord will help you do that. Listen, read, memorize, meditate, live it out, apply it. So immerse yourself in the Bible. Do those things. Number three, lastly, Adore God through His Word. Delight in Jesus by spending time here. Realize the value of what we have in our hands. This has more worth than all the silver, all the gold, all the jewels in the entire world. Oh, how precious is the Word of God! This is the means, this is the means that God has ordained to know Him more. Why would we not take advantage of this? Treasure the Bible. As the conduit to know God more. Now, don't love the Bible more than you love God. That's called bibliolatry, and that is a thing. Don't do that. Don't love the Bible more than you love God. We love, the, we love God because of the Bible. Right? I said, right? right. Amen. This is good. These are God's words to us. Last Sunday, ladies, was what day? Mother's Day the mother of all holidays. Now, that joke didn't work in the first service either. <laughs> so, the day before Mother's Day, our five-year-old Genevieve and I were making a card for Mommy, and she just so desperately wanted to make a card, and so we had an idea. In fact, let's put it on the screen. <laughs> Clearly, that is my handwriting. <laughs> just kidding. So, Genevieve and I she wrote everything, and we kind of worked on it together. Mommy is, and we made an anagram of the alphabet, A through Z, all the characteristics about mommy. Mommy is amazing, beautiful, caring, delightful. Here are a few of my favorite ones. I, itchy. <laughs> oh, we laughed and laughed about that one. Mommy is itchy. I'm still laughing about it. X, Zenial. Xenial, Xenial means hospitable, especially in ancient Greece. <laughs> you try coming up with an X-word adjective, that's hard. And then here's by far my favorite one, Z, zesty. <laughs> Mommy is spicy. <laughs> now, do you think Sky loved this card? Oh, yeah. She delighted in it. Did she love it more than Genevieve? Did she delight in it more than Genevieve? Did she take the card and go, oh, what an amazing card. I'm gonna read it every day. I'm gonna sleep with it. I'm gonna never, I'm gonna frame it, I'm never gonna leave it. Genevieve, go to your room. I just to just go, I'm gonna treasure this card so much. Oh, it's so wonderful. No, why? She loved it because she knew the one who wrote the card. She delighted in it because she knew the source. She knew the one behind the card. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, church, we love the Bible because we know the source. We know the one who wrote it. Delight in the Bible because of the one who wrote this story. Delight in God through the Bible.